ready. I, it makes me glad to see Jim Variant, who is um, Travis's father, and also to see Harry Kaysen here, um, who is Betty May's one and only son. Um, I rejoice to be able to see you. Um, uh, uh, sad for the occasion, but um, I know you'll have a good family time together as well. And, uh, may God bless you. Kevin DeYoung says, and you have to think about this for a moment. Kevin DeYoung says, the secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about what God has already done for us. There's a truth to that. And it is uh, demonstrated uh, throughout the scriptures. We use the word initiative or indicative. Indicative means uh, something that is indicated, uh, something that's already been done. And initiative is something that's already been started. And then we use this other word, imperative. An imperative is a command. It's something for us to do. It's something that we ought to do if God gives the imperative. But in the word of God, always, always, the initiative, the indicative comes first, and then the imperative Go to paradise. Go to the Garden of Eden. When did God tell Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? When did he say that to them? After he had done the initiative, the indicative, and made the world and put them in paradise and put them in the midst of the garden and gave Adam a wife. How happy he must have been at that moment after he named all the animals, after he had given him dominion. Then he said, then he gave him the imperative. You may eat from any tree you want to. Just one. Just one. Don't eat of that tree. When God gave the most famous imperatives that all of you know, the imperatives, the commands, the Ten Commandments, when did he give those? You know when he gave them. After the tremendous, unspeakable, unparalleled deliverance of Israel from what God calls the iron furnace. I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. There is no God like our God. That's the way he is. You tell me what the other gods of this world 
who have tremendous followings, tell me what they have done for their people. What initiative? What indicative? What have they started for them? What have they done? Nothing. All they have are imperatives. They have commands. They have regulations. They have rules. They have things that they must do. But they're not giving anything to their people. But this is our God. And this is the God of of 1 Peter. Our, our passage in verse 13 begins with therefore. And of course what, the, what that means is for, for what reasons what can we conclude? What, what are the imperatives that are going to come? What are they based upon? In verse 2, we have been sprinkled with the blood of the Son of God. In verse 3, mercy has come and we have been born again to a living hope. We have an untouchable, unalterable inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. We have what the prophets wanted. We have what angels still long to look into. We have, we have the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. So, what is the point? What is the point that I'm trying to make? It, that I'm trying to make? It is simply and wonderfully this. The indicatives, the initiatives precede, they come before the imperatives. They are marvelous in, indicatives that are the, are the foundation of the imperatives that God gives us. In verse 13 then, we first find ourselves with a fixed and prepared hope. It is literally translated, gird up the loins of your mind. And of course, you, you know that it's a metaphor. It's what they used to do when they had long garments and they wanted to be able to run or they wanted to be able to work and they had to gird them up. They had to gather up their garments and put them in their belt so they could work or so they could run. And what he is saying then for our minds, for us who are pilgrims, who are temporary residents of this earth, who are exiles, he's saying this is what you need to do. This is an imperative. Gird up the loins of your mind and it is applied to our minds. It means be ready, be disciplined, be intentional in your thinking. Realize how much your thinking controls how you feel and what you do. Get a hold of, 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 of your thoughts. Be an intentional thinker. 
And when it's linked to the next phrase, being sober-minded, we see that we cannot live carelessly and with slackness, with heedless attention. We know, at least many of us know, and maybe all of us know, uh, what it's like to be drunk. If you don't know it personally, you know it because you've seen it in others. Being drunk, uh, very simply, in a, in a physical way, takes away your sharpness. It takes away proper judgment. It, it makes you out of control. You become silly. You become foolish. You may become violent. But, but you are not in control of yourself uh, when you are drunk. Well, in a spiritual way... If we're to be sober-minded, it, 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 it is much more subtle than that. It's, it's those things which cloud our thinking and blur our vision and encumber our steps. And many times, if not all the time, they're good things. They, they are distractions. They're, they're out of proportion. You know there's going to be an iPhone 5. It's coming out. Nothing wrong with an iPhone. But if, it, but if it becomes your preoccupation, if it takes the place of prayer, if it keeps you from reading your Bible, whatever you can think of, whatever good thing that's out of proportion, you're too much on your computer, you're too much on Facebook, you're watching too much television, you're playing around too much, you don't need that much recreation, you're doing all kinds of things that are keeping you from being sober-minded and being ready to serve Christ. That's an imperative. But what is it, what is it based upon? It is based upon setting your hope, this fixed hope, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is that solid confidence in God. It is the kind of hope that you can hang your whole soul on. You can count on it. It's not a hope so. It's, it's, it's a solid hope in a person. It's, it is so certain that, that you can plan on it. You can count on it. You, you, you can hold on to it. You can be controlled by it because it's real. It's not imaginary. It's not a dream. It's a, it's a reality. And you have it now. Well... This grace then, this grace literally is being brought to you. That's what it literally says. It's being carried to you. It may be thought of as, as on the way. One translator translates it, it is bearing down upon you. The grace of Jesus Christ and what a privilege uh, to contemplate and, and, and to make our plans to serve God, to be able to take action and to do things like one senior person uh, in our church told me. This person told me, 
and and th- th- this person is older this person is 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 35 years older than i am this person said you know there are times when i don't feel like doing something i don't feel like getting out of bed i don't feel like going to that meeting i i don't feel like it but i do it anyway and when i do it there's a blessing waiting for me i want to live like that I want to do things that I don't feel like doing. And I want to get the same blessing that this person was testifying of. Well, in the second place, then, we have a hope. We have a fixed hope. We have a ready hope. We have a sure hope. In the second place, we have a hope that expresses itself in obedience. It is an obedient hope. Look at verse 14. We have a negative impact imperative that is what we're not to do yet it's wrapped up it's wrapped up in a privilege as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance it is literally children of obedience that's who we are the call to obedience is grounded in, 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 in what God has already constituted us to be. We are children of obedience. We are recipients of the new birth. We are adopted into the family of God. It is our nature. It is our, <laughs> our constitution. And we know where we came from. We know that according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, that we were once dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. God has made us to be sons and daughters of obedience. That's who we are. And, and so it's easy to receive the imperative. We, we're no longer to walk the way we once walked in, in those passions and in our ignorance. Acts 17.30 speaks of times of ignorance. Ephesians 4.17 and 18 is a little more pointed. Paul says, now this I testify. This I say and testify in, in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's, uh, that is in them due to the hardness of heart. What all of us say, if you don't know Jesus today, all of us say to you, we've been there and we've done that. We have been there. We have been in darkness. We have been ignorant. We have been not knowing Jesus Christ. We've been practicing sin. All of us have different levels of that, uh, different experiences of that. But the compliment of that, there's nothing you can tell us about sin. There's nothing you can tell me about sin, about the pleasures of it, about what you can get out of it. There's nothing you can tell me. You can't tell me anything about it. I have been there and done that. I can't give you my testimony right now. But I can tell you this. I now am a child of obedience. 
And you can have all that. You can take all that. There's more pleasure and joy and gladness to be found in Jesus than in any drug, in any amount of sex, in any piles of material things. Tim Keller says Christianity is a religion of joy. You're welcome. You're welcome to come. Come and join us in our religion of joy. Well, notice then that this is a holy hope. It is a holy, obedient hope wrapped up in the privilege that you see in verses 15 and 16. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Oh, where's the privilege? Where's the incentive? Where's the indicative? Where's what I keep saying comes first? Look what he says. He says, but as he who called you. If you are saved, if you are a child of obedience, if you are born again, if you have a hope which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away, if you have these things, it's because he called you. That's right. (laughs) That has made all the difference in our lives is the call of God. You didn't hear him audibly, but you heard him certainly and irresistibly in your heart. He called you. Why did you ever pray to be saved? Why did you ever ask God to forgive you for your sins? Why did you ever welcome Christ into your heart and life? Why did you cry out? I cried out in the night. With my two brothers sleeping on bunk beds, I whispered, Oh, Jesus, I'm going to hell. I deserve to go there. I got no other hope unless you save me. I'm a wretched sinner. Why did I do that? Because God called me. God gave me that irresistible, effectual call that brings about the results that he wants to see from a sinner that my friends would never believe would ever come to Christ. That's my testimony. And here I'm standing behind a pulpit. That is the call of God. The call to follow Jesus And some of us have this huge responsibility and privilege and pleasure to be called into the ministry. Hallelujah. But that's what you have. That's the privilege. He called you life. He gave you life from the dead. And so then the nature of the one who calls you, who did call you and still calls you, we find out and we know this. He's holy. He is holy. He is separated from everything that is morally evil 
and wicked and impure. He is inclined to, he is totally dedicated to, committed to. It's all he is, is goodness and purity and righteousness and justice. That's what he is. What the biblical model is of, of for us, holiness does, does two basic things. It sets us apart f- from ordinary use. That's what it meant in the Old Testament. But not only does it set us apart from ordinary use, it sets us unto a glorious use. That's what it means. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart, and to be enabled to be devoted to a glorious use. Leviticus 27 says, and, and also in, in uh, uh, verse 26, you have what God says. He says, consecrate your, yourselves, therefore, be holy. For I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That's your God. That's our God. Our model for holiness is God himself. That's the highest standard. No other religion even names that. No other religion even speaks of of the perfection of the holiness of their God. All the other gods seem to me like they're angry. And like they're dissatisfied and they require their people uh, to bring satisfaction to them. They are incomplete. Again, Kevin DeYoung says, uh, we see in Jesus, if, if, if you want some help with holiness, we see in Jesus the best, most practical, most human example of what it means to be holy. Get to know him. Get to know Jesus. Read the Gospels over and over and over again and look at Jesus. And you will behold holiness personified. Holiness in the person of of, uh, Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this in Titus 2. He, He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. All kinds of people. Marvelous. But what does it do? What does grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in, in this present age. Waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless lawless deed and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. You see how how, how Paul can summarize it in, 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 in just a couple of sentences, exactly what Peter is saying. Now, thirdly, we see then we have a hope. We have a hope that fears, that reverences its holy object. That's verses 17 and 
uh, through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, here's the imperative, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. The third imperative, the third kind of hope is a fearful hope. The the biblical background to this looks something like this. Deuteronomy 8, 6 says, you shall, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways by fearing him. Fearing him means walking in his ways, doing what he says, being like he is. It's heaped with privilege. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water and fountains and springs flowing out in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good he has given you fear is a happy regard for all that God has given to reverence him to be afraid of offending him and 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 I'll say this too the fear of the Lord means being afraid of his punishment, of his chastisement, because he's a father. Every father here, every father here who loves his son, who loves his daughter, he will discipline him. He will set him free from his selfishness and his bad attitude and his disobedience. He disciplines him because he loves him. Well, the fear of the Lord means... I, I am afraid at times of losing the privileges that I have by my disobedience to God. It motivates me to be glad in him and to bless him and to thank him for all the gifts, the same gifts that, that are in this passage. Proverbs 3, 7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Oh, what does that mean? Turn away from evil. If you fear the Lord, you'll turn away from evil. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the, the fear of the Lord is a classic passage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Real wisdom, real insight is the man, is the woman, it's the boy, it's the girl that fears the Lord. That does what he says. That blesses the Lord that stays away from sin because it displeases his father. Well, we don't want to lose fellowship with him. We don't want to warrant the rod. We don't want to lose a privilege. Verse 17 of our text says, we are also reminded that we are exiles, that we are temporary residents. This means that we're out of the mainstream 
Don't, don't, don't try to conform and, and, and see how well you can track with this world. Don't try to do that. It's futile. We want to connect with the world. We want to bless the world, but we will never be in the mainstream of the world. We will never be in the current that's, that flows so freely. We will never be in the broad road that leads to destruction. We will always be on the narrow road. We are exiles. We are at cross purposes with this world's sinful culture. We have had a shift in all of our values. That's normal. That's what we want. Our orientation is both vertical, where we have total comfort. We look up. And we think about God and we think about Christ and we think about him coming back. Total comfort. If we look horizontally, we have a mixture. We have a mixture of good things that we see and good things that we want to do. But there are trials and troubles and there is suffering. Uh, there is sin. There are all, all these things. But if we look forward which is what our passage is all about. The eschatological nature of it is it concerns the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes and, 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 and he brings that final deposit of grace that we need. If we're on the earth when he comes, what a happy day like no other day. What a rush is what we used to say. What a rush. And Christ is coming back. So, we have this orientation. But it all hinges on the privilege. See, don't miss the privilege. The privilege in the passage is if you call him father, if you invoke him under that heading, if, if, if you say that. Everybody wants to say that. Lots and lots of people say that. They can flippantly say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I said that for years and years. I, I was raised a Roman Catholic and God was not my father. We can say that. But all of you who have the spirit of God in you, and you call upon God as your father with all sincerity and conviction, who, who, who cry, Abba, Father, because you have the spirit of Christ within you. That's the privilege. That's why he can say. That's why he says hope is a hope that fears. Because you call God Father. And a, and a good father loves his children and, 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 and blesses them and, and also disciplines them. And your father, according to our text, your father, according to our text, is the judge. The judge is your father. Your father is, is the judge. And, and, and he will execute through Jesus Christ the final judgment, but he also judges us as it were, as any father does, on on, on a daily basis, either he is pleased with, with what you are currently doing or he is displeased with it. And we have to have that consciousness. This judge, though, 
is like no other judge. He cannot be bribed. He has no prejudice. He is not biased, and he can never make a mistake. That's something that we celebrate. John puts it all together. In 1 John 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, this revelation of Jesus Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And look what it leads to. Knowing that you are a child of God does not lead to laxity. It does not lead to carelessness. What does John say? He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. That's Christianity. That's what we do. If we are hoping in God as our Father and as a righteous judge, if we are truly born again, if we are anticipating the second coming of Christ, we purify ourselves. Everyone who has the soap purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, lastly then, lastly, in verses 18 through uh, 21, uh, we have the foundation of the whole matter for all of the hope for all of the holiness for all of the fear for all the bearing up of under trials for all 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 the suffering the unparalleled privilege the the huge the enormous indicative that we have in these verses Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold. You were like POWs. We were like prisoners of war. We were like slaves. But the slavery... And being in the prison was so strong. Gold won't buy it. Silver won't buy your freedom. Not all the tea in China will buy your freedom. Not all the diamonds in Ethiopia will save you. It won't do it. Everything, every square inch of this earth already belongs to Jesus. You've got nothing to give him. He's got to give it. He's the initiator. He's the indicative. You need the blood of Jesus Christ. That will save you. Nothing, nothing, nothing else but the blood of Jesus. You've got to have it. Oh, and you can get it. Tell God you want it. That all of your efforts, all of your good works, whatever you can give God, all you can give God is your sins. And he'll wash them away in the blood of Jesus if you'll just do that. 
And you see that he was foreknown. Some translations, the newest one, the Holman Christian, what is it, Master Ted? The Holman Hol- Christian Standard Bible just simply translates it for what it really, really means. The literal translation is he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But what it really means is that he was chosen. That this was God's plan. This was God's distinguishing regard for his son that he loved before the world was ever made. Before, from all eternity. This is the foundation that Christianity is based upon. It's an eternal plan that fastens on Jesus Christ and the substitutionary sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, the bearing up, interposing, interposing him himself between us and the just wrath of God. We have a savior. His name is Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, that was planned. Look at the tremendous privilege in just, in verse 20, the last four words, for the sake of you. That's why God did that. He did it for your sake. He did it for his glory for sure. But his glory, he chose to fasten upon it, our sakes. That's what he did. Verse 21 says, for through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead, gave him glory. And then you see the final close of, 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 of this hope that I've been talking about. So that your faith and hope are in God. Let me give you the final application then. And then we're done. Just one application, okay? I hope you've been blessed by seeing Jesus, seeing your privilege. I hope you are wholly disposed to take up the imperatives that are based upon the initiatives and the indicatives and the doings of God. But the final application is, is simply this. You can be holy. You can be. This is is something that we can do. You can overcome whatever besetting sin, whatever tendency that you have that you've not yet licked it. You can. You can. You can ask God. You know, when you pray, there are many times that when you pray, you're not certain he's going to answer it. It's really up to him uh, because you're not sure that he, that he really wants this thing to be. Not with holiness, not with a victory over your sin. You can be dead sure that he will help you. He will show you what the way of escape is. He will give you a strategy and you will be able to overcome it. You will. You've got to believe me. You've got to believe that you are a child of obedience, that you've been purchased, that God commands you to be holy even as he is holy. We can't reach that in in this life, but we will, but we can move toward it. That's what he wants us to do. That's why he tells us that. You can. You can. You have the ability to do that. You don't have to look twice, men. You can look to the cross. You don't have to be selfish. You don't have to worry about your money all the time. You can give it. You can do it. I know you can. 
You can become a tither. You can support missions. You can do those kinds of things. You don't, you don't have to get locked into your television and your phone and your Facebook and your Twitter. You don't have to do that. You can, you can just lay it down and say, hey, 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 I don't have to do this. I can read my Bible. That's what I'm going to do. That can wait. You have this ability. Whatever it is that's troubling you, you can do it. You, because, because God is with you. He's on your side. You are born again. You're a child of obedience. Your nature and your identity and the ransom. You've been, you've been bought. You've been paid for. You've been ransomed away for, uh, for this very purpose. I'll just close uh, with this passage. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we rejoice in it. All the things that are all messed up in this world and the grace of God that is within us and the hope that we have that millions and millions of more will be saved. But ultimately, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be judged by a man, the God-man. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We can't thank you enough for the multiplied indicatives of your word for all that you have done. It is entirely reasonable for us to fulfill all the imperatives because you have done so much for us. We praise you. We praise you and worship you that there bring an in-gathering. Oh, God, bring an in-gathering in this justice this morning to enter into the joy and the forgiveness and the holiness and the service of Jesus Christ. Come, come, Holy Spirit, and do it for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the gospel.